Hi everyone, welcome to Word and Tech Talks. I am Javier. And I'm Leon. And we are your co-hosts today. For this episode, we have on Scott Walbron, a venture capital investor, BMW iVentures, where he focuses on early and mid-stage investments across mobility, sustainability, and deep tech, intelligent supply chain, and enterprise software. Scott holds an MBA from the University of Chicago and previously worked at Jeffries Technology Investment Banking Group, advising clients on IPOs and M&A. Scott started his career at Fiat Chrysler Finance Leadership Development Program and has additional experience in private equity, early stage technology commercialization, and strategic finance. Scott, we are super excited to have you here on the podcast. Where are you calling us from? Hey, thanks for having me. And I'm calling from San Francisco, California. Nice. Just to kick us off, can you tell us more about your career trajectory? Yeah, I would be happy to. So I think you hit on some of the key highlights there or the positions that I've had over my career. But, you know, I started at Fiat Chrysler in their corporate finance rotation program and Worked across a bunch of different areas there. Had an interesting experience where I actually relocated and lived in Mexico City, Mexico for a little under a year. And that was a great experience for me for so many reasons. But as part of that, I was working on developing a new joint venture financial services company, which became FCA Financial Mexico. And that was really the first time I worked with transactions and trying to negotiate and bring companies together. So I really enjoyed that experience, and that was the impetus to, for me to ultimately go to the next company, which was Truck Hero. And Truck Hero was backed by TA Associates at the time, and so I was managing strategic finance there. And we acquired a handful of companies, and then ended up selling the company through a leverage buyout. And loved that experience, and went to University of Chicago for the MBA, trying to make a transition into private equity and. I had a great experience interning at a private equity firm there called Kinsey Capital Partners, just a phenomenal team, loved the model. And during my time there, I actually started working with a lot of the, separate of this, I started working with a lot of the accelerator programs there at the university that were spinning out university research into new companies and just absolutely fell in love with this experience. And so it started with a biotech company, and then it ended up parlaying that into working with a handful of them and then becoming a coach there and holding workshops on finance for entrepreneurs. And so it was sort of at that time that I knew that the venture capital space was really where I wanted to marry those two, you know, the passion for working with early stage companies and applying my finance skills together. So when BMW iVentures and the opportunity came to join the team here, it was just a perfect fit. Yeah, that makes sense. And it sounds super exciting, a really interesting career trajectory, even having the opportunity to go abroad to a new country. What are the big trends that you are currently seeing in terms of the future of mobility? Yeah. So a couple of the key trends that I'm watching are, first, I would say is autonomy. And then the second is electrification. Autonomy, in particular, passenger and commercial vehicles has been in the news quite a bit lately. It's not exactly a new trend, but where it's becoming increasingly more near term, especially as in these moderately controlled what I would say, industrial environments. So there's specific use cases where the technology today is ready to go and being commercialized. And so looking at opportunities for applying autonomous technologies in some of these 
moderately controlled environments is an interesting one that we're spending some time in. And then electrification is also a big mega trend that's taking place right now, but there's really a once in a generation or multi-generation shift that's happening in the architecture of vehicles. And that is moving from the internal combustion engine into electric vehicles. And so there's a lot that's going on within battery technology specifically. And then supporting that transition is the infrastructure, the materials that go into these batteries and next generation vehicles, and creating a more sustainable and circular supply chain. Scott, you talked a little about autonomy, and that's one of the first things people usually think about when they think about the future of mobility. How is sentiment about these autonomy companies changing in this macro environment? Yeah. And by the way, and I probably should have led with this, you know, a lot of these opinions here are definitely my own opinions. As, you know, I don't want to pretend to represent, you know, BMW's opinions on these. So, you know, take these with the grain of salt that they are. But when it comes to autonomy, there is really, I mean, if we take a step back, I guess there's this idea like the Gartner hype cycle, right? Where you have this peak, an increase of excitement a peak in a hype cycle, and then it tends to come back down. And then there's some consolidation that happens. And then ultimately, the best of the breed survive. And then that technology continues to develop and mature. So I think where it is today is coming through some of that trough of disillusionment, if you will, and trying to really cross the chasm. I think for some of the causes here, right, is just around developing the safe autonomous functions, right? So like particularly in consumer applications and urban markets. It's a challenging problem. And I think it's more challenging than what a lot of people initially thought five, six, seven years ago. But the reality is, is that the technology is continuing to improve. So even as there is some shakeout, which is unfortunate in this industry, whenever you have an industry that's growing, you kind of cheer for everyone and hope to see that the technology is ultimately coming through. But I think what we will see is that there will be strength in a few players that will ultimately prove out this technology. So, and in consumer and urban environments specifically. So, you know, things like automotive standards, right? Test requirements, regulatory requirements. There's a lot that goes into those consumer facing areas. And so it's such a massive market. And that's really where a lot of these applications started. But as I alluded to a couple of minutes ago, I think that some of these other semi-controlled environments are already ripe for disruption, if you will, by some of these autonomous technologies. Yeah. And you talk shifting gears a little bit from the technology to the investment approach, but staying on the macro environment. How has the current tepid macro environment changed your investment approach? Yeah. So I think if we take a step back, right, as a venture capital investor, you're really looking for, I mean, to use the phrase that was popularized by Peter Thiel, right? But like you're looking for these non-consensus and correct investment decisions in early stage companies that can create and capture just an immense amount of value. And these types of returns are really less correlated with the broader market, at least when compared to investing in things like public stocks and bonds, and that's really due to the fact that returns in venture capital tend to be power law distributed and not normally distributed or leptocurtic normal distribution. So, you know, for that reason alone, I think it's important to continue to invest in innovative companies throughout market cycles because of that lack of correlation, right? And there's a lot of great examples of this, right? I mean, Google, Salesforce, Uber, like a lot of these companies were founded and came up during 
recessionary time. So when I think about my own investment strategy and thinking about, okay, well, how do you adapt to this current environment, sort of given the fact that it makes sense to continue to invest through cycles, I think there's a few different types of considerations, right? There's things like the structure of the investments. So thinking about valuations, you know, valuation is really a function of the market, but it's important to keep that in mind relative to your fund size. So investment structural is an important consideration and also company specific things, right? So a lot of the companies that we're looking at have value inflection points that come from mitigating market and technology risks by achieving key milestones. And so if you sort of dissect that and say, okay, well, within those key milestones, you know, which of them are correlated to the broader market? And those are the ones that you need to be the most wary of when looking forward, right? So, you know, things like if you've got a customer decision, right, that's that you need to go through a process of, you know, through an innovation team or through a budget, right? Like those things might be more correlated to broader markets, right? Versus if you're looking at underwriting pure technology risk, improving out some type of novel approach to something that that may very well have a very low correlation coefficient with the broader market. So just some kind of considerations there as to how you adapt your approach in times like these. Interesting points, Scott. I wanted to switch gears and talk about the recent supply chain shocks that have brought automation and robotics to the forefront. However, we have seen that adoption has been a bit slower than what many expected. So when will we see robots make their biggest impact and where? And what are the biggest drivers towards making this technology more common in the industry? Yeah. So robotics are really improving supply chain resiliency and improving workplace safety by automating work in what is a lot of times dangerous environments. And they're also creating a lot of new, higher skilled jobs when it comes to implementing and programming and maintaining these robots. So underlying this is things like cloud computing, advances in AI, ML, and just continued decreased costs in things like sensors and screens and processors is just really rapidly improving the productivity of a lot of these robotic solutions and importantly, the investment payback time for those customers. So I'm a bit less familiar with some of the automation trends in areas like ag tech, which I understand is also experiencing a lot of wind in their sales, but where I've spent the most time is in warehouse and manufacturing automation and that's an area that's continued to really explode over the last few years, you know, as the pandemic had a lot of really negative effects around the world and to families and people's health. But, you know, one positive externality has been to the automation market or environment where trying to build resiliency into supply chains, you know, it's just really brought that pain point to the forefront. And in fact, I think in the last year, and I can't remember if this is a 2021 or 2022 data point, but there was more robots sold in that year than I believe in any other before that. So robot solutions have really continued to expand. One investment that we've made in particular, we led the recent capital raise in a company called Fox Robotics. And Fox is interesting and this sort of brings together that first trend about autonomy and semi-controlled environments. 
and this idea of automation. So Fox is really creating what I'd say is the world's first truly intelligent forklift that can autonomously unload pallets from receiving docks. And automation within manufacturing assembly has been around for a long time and it's been powered by, you know, companies like KUKA and obviously automotive OEMs that have been, you know, coordinating a lot of those automation efforts. But material handling has been a lot more of a complex problem just because of the lack of uniformity and uncertainty, quite honestly, that's inherent in that environment. So, you know, with Fox, what's interesting is, is that even within loading and unloading, it's really a massive market opportunity. And there's, it is benefiting from a lot of these tailwinds and just a big pain point and obvious value proposition. And what we liked about them is that they're able to deploy their robots and actually have them up and running in commercial environments in less than an hour. And they've proven that out at multiple blue chip customers, one of them being DHL. And so when we saw that, we were quite excited about the company and partnering with the team there. Fox Robotics sounds very, very interesting. Do you think there is space for other robotics companies to continue innovating in this particular field? And also, do you think there is also like a cost component part in terms of the adoption, like as the technology continues to grow and costs go down. Do you think that will also improve the adoption part in, in this equation? Yeah, absolutely. So I think just taking the second one first, the reality is, is that you know there is inflation in the market and as inflation has been quite high in the last year or so and will likely prolong for at least another year. But inflation when you look at it compared to robotic solutions, improves the payback period a lot of times for these types of solutions. So I think from an investment and payback period from the customer standpoint, there's just a lot of reasons to implement solutions like this. And I think that payback function is going to continue to improve for years to come. And that's not to mention just some of these other safety and resiliency you know, benefits of those types of solutions. When it comes to, you know, are there opportunities here? I think the answer is yes. And in fact, I think that we'll continue to see an acceleration around what these solutions are capable of. And part of that is coming from the fact that a lot of the input costs to these robots is actually going down, whether it's computer, it's sensors, and the performance of them is improving. So, and when you look at a solution like Fox or with many others, right, that are that have a machine vision or some other AI ML function at the core that's that's powering it, like those functions are improving over time. And so I think when you put the all of that together and you say, okay, well, what's the next 10 years going to look like relative to the prior 10 years? I'm very excited. Yeah, super interesting. Pivoting a little to the other big topic in mobility, electrification, we've seen a lot of development in next generation battery technologies from Tesla's honeycomb design to solid state technology for batteries. What do you think has the most promise and what are you looking for when you evaluate companies in this space? Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely a lot happening here and it's it's a very technical and complicated space and it's one that I certainly rely on experts you know on the technology to help coach me through the technical risks and opportunities there I think if we take a step back and say okay for those that maybe aren't super familiar with batteries just 30 seconds you know, how a battery really works 
a battery generates electricity right through a chemical reaction, and that takes place between two electrodes and an electrolyte. The positive electrode is the anode, the negative electrode is the cathode, and the electrolyte separates those two electrodes. And as you have this flow of ions between them, that comes from the chemical reaction. And that's essentially what creates the electricity is from that potential difference. So as I mentioned, there's just been a lot of really amazing technical advances in the space. And I think first, you know, when you think about there's the innovation piece of the puzzle, but then there's also the cost function, right? I mean, it's similar to automation in, or many other innovations from that point. But if you take the cost part of the equation first, because that's ultimately what's required to ensure that like, like these have to be economical to the end consumer, ultimately for electrification to really penetrate. And so electric vehicles have really experienced a 10x drop in production price per kilowatt hour since 2012. So they've continued to drop. And I would say within the next handful of years, they're likely or at least projected by Bloomberg and others to be less expensive per kilowatt hour than their internal combustion engine counterparts. So I think that where we are today is we're getting towards a tipping point on this architecture in the industry. And we're really just now at these at the beginning stages of the of switching that standard. So in the last year, the Bloomberg, you know, price per kilowatt hour actually for the first time increased though. And it went from I think it was like 140, 141 to 150 or 51 per kilowatt hour. This was essentially due to the increase in raw material costs. And they also pushed out by a couple of years the price, or sorry, when the price is likely to drop below a hundred dollars a kilowatt hour. And so the reality is, is that the raw material costs ultimately will need to ease and will need an alleviation of the supply constraint that exists or is likely to come about in the coming years here to really enable that continued drop in price, right? So I guess, yeah, enabling the low cost and sustainable production of these raw materials is going to be key to making that transition, you know, and, and when we think about solar and some of these other sources of power that's coming in and going to ultimately power these batteries, there's a great argument to say that the marginal cost of electricity is heading towards zero. I mean, we're not going to zero anytime soon, but we'll likely drop to a few cents here over the next 10 to 15 years. So that production price and overall cost per kilowatt hour of electricity will be important to continue to watch and to ensure that those continue to come down. But the manufacturing improvements alone are really driving a lot of these today, because even with this big increase in input cost, things like the manufacturing cost, the cost of the pack, and also the mix of different types of chemistry. So LFP, for example, is a lower lithium iron phosphate is a less expensive material cost battery chemistry relative to some of the high nickel and cobalt chemistries. And so the mix has shifted more towards LFP globally. And so that's also bringing down the price. So there's like a high or an increase in cost that's coming from raw material inputs. And then there's a decrease that's happening from moving down this learning curve from scale economies, from manufacturing and pack improvements, and then also a mix shift between chemistries. So when we think then about, okay, if the cost side of the equation, assuming that there isn't just a raw material situation where 
that these materials just essentially aren't available. And I don't think that that's going to happen. I mean, there is risk around the supply, but I don't think that it's going to shut down this mega trend. So sort of setting that aside, the cost is heading very much in the right direction to support this trend. And so then if we say, okay, well, what about the performance improvements? What are some of the key innovations there that are interesting? So I think a few of these are things like dry coating, solid state, technologies, like you mentioned, silicon anodes, and then also alternative chemistries are something that are being talked about. So we're looking at all of these areas for investment. Dry coating, for those that aren't familiar, this is essentially a production method actually for the electrodes. The electrodes are essentially like you take these active materials and binders and like conductive agents on a substrate and you use technologies like printing and spray coating and stuff. And essentially by using dry coating, right, you're able to have better control over the thickness and the uniformity in the active layer than like traditional wet coating methods. Solid state is essentially a type of, is using a solid electrolyte instead of a liquid or gel. And so this has a lot of promise to improve battery performance and safety and energy density. Silicon anodes also improve energy density. This is on the anode side. So normally anodes are made of graphite, which has kind of a low theoretic capacity for lithium storage, but silicon has a much higher. So I think that we'll see silicon anodes, especially like lower mix of silicon in the anodes earlier is one of kind of like the next interesting areas. And then the last one, alternative chemistries, there's things like sodium ion batteries, that I think will probably have less applications in vehicles, at least in the medium to long term. But things like stationary storage could be super interesting there. And with essentially volumetric energy density kind of being the limiting factor there, like you, you essentially need to cram more energy into less space in a vehicle than what sodium would ultimately provide. So, you know, we made an investment, BMW iVentures made an investment in a company called Arnex Energy. And this is one we're quite excited about. They essentially have a dual chemistry type technology with their Gemini. And this uses anode free cells for high energy density and then LFP for more like power and durability. And it's enabled them. There's actually a video on YouTube even where they retrofitted a Tesla and they drove it 750 miles on a single charge. And they went from like Detroit up to the UP and Michigan and then back back down and it's pretty amazing. And so range anxiety is a key area So for consumer adoption. So this is a company that we're quite excited about. Yeah. Wow. We hear a lot about range anxiety, but 750 miles will go a long way to alleviate those worries. And you know, as electric vehicles start rolling off and ramping up in production, supply chains are going to be another big question, especially in the space of the batteries that go in these vehicles. What are startups doing to create these sustainable supply chains for batteries? Yeah, so I think around here, the value chain around lithium and these raw materials is a key area. And lithium is the most obvious because it's such a large component of these lithium ion batteries, as you might guess. But there's other materials that the supply chain is going to be important and there's going to be interesting opportunities to to invest in. But For lithium specifically, I'd sort of break it into upstream and downstream processing. So there's like upstream, which is the lithium extraction. Today, lithium is extracted either from brine, 
which is like a salt heavy solution or liquid. And then the other is more traditional hard rock mining. And then downstream, that lithium is then refined. So it'll come out as either lithium chloride or lithium sulfate, and then will be refined into either lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide. And it needs to be at a battery grade in order for it to be fully performant in batteries. So upstream, we've made an investment company called Lilac Solutions that does direct lithium extraction, which is a new approach, relatively new approach to extracting lithium directly out of brine and then essentially using an ion exchange process, removing the trace amounts of lithium that are in the brine and then putting the brine right back where it was. The second is around the processing and refining stage. And we've made an investment in a company called Mangrove Lithium. We led around in them probably six or 12 months ago, probably now. And they're using an electrochemical approach that essentially will enable you to completely bypass the lithium carbonate step and go right to lithium hydroxide, which is key for high performance lithium batteries. So, and again, using electrochemistry, you remove a lot of reagents and and other costs out of the system. So this not only is a more sustainable approach, but also is going to enable more supply of lithium because those deposits that may not have been economical when you looked at it going all the way through the battery chain to extract and commercialize that today you know would be with their technology so those are two areas that we've spent some time in and actually made some investments in around the battery chain battery value chain scott we'd love now to be able and ask you a couple of rapid fire style questions are you ready yeah let's do it okay awesome who is a world leader or industry leader that you look up to? Yeah, so there's actually a lot, but I think one in particular is actually Clayton Christensen. <laughs> and he's a very well-known business thinker. He was a professor at Harvard Business School, but he's probably best known for The Innovator's Dilemma, which is a book and basically this concept of disruptive innovation. And I think it's really, it's a very well-known Phenomena, but it's really influenced my own thinking about disruptive innovation and understanding of how technologies are ultimately adopted. Yeah, I just took a technology strategy class and we were reviewing that concept. So I knew right away when you say the name of the professor that came to mind. <laughs> yeah, it's a fascinating mental model. And it's one of these that once you spend some time around it, it's just amazing how consistent so many innovations have really fit that, dis his form of like Christensen disruption, how many of them fit that model. I have another one. What's your favorite class? What was your favorite class at Booth? Yeah, so my favorite class at Booth was actually, I'll actually have two here, but they're taught by the same professor. So it was entrepreneurial finance and private equity. And then the second was commercializing innovation. They're both taught by Scott Meadows, the clinical professor there, and he practiced venture capital and private equity for a number of years. And so I took both of those classes and then TA'd or was a teaching assistant and then wrote some case studies for the course. And it was really a great training ground to just get a deep level of understanding around a lot of commercializing innovation principles and how to think, you know, like a venture capitalist and investor. What about a recent book, business or non-business, you read that you would recommend? Yeah. So I read a lot of books. I'll give to the 
one business and one non-business. So on the business side, I recently read Seven Powers by Hamilton Helmer. He's a Stanford Business School professor. And the idea is around what creates sustainable competitive advantage, and then in practice, really how to identify it. So there's you know, scale economies, network effects, switching costs, cornered resources, I could probably name all cornered resources, branding, counter positioning, and process power. And so essentially we go through the book goes through each one of these and identifies like you know, how does this give rise to a sustainable competitive advantage? And so it's really impacted my view when evaluating companies and technologies for, you know, even if they don't have this moat today, you know, what are the scenarios or the futures that would enable that moat to come about? Oh, and then the second is the nonfiction. So this book was called The Spy and the Trader. Uh, it's by Ben McIntyre. And it's it's actually a really amazing true story of Cold War espionage. And it follows the senior KGB officer that was supplying MI6 officers with intelligence. And it's wild. It, it reads like a fiction, but it's a true story and a fascinating read. Wow. I was going to say, there seems to be a theme in this fun section of questions about like competitive strategy, but Spy the Trader, that seems very tactical as well. So very thematic here. <laughs> you're, you're very in character. All right. Final question to you. Kind of on the topic of you talked about uh, non-consensus correct decisions. What's your boldest, most unique prediction, non-consensus, that folks might feel as a food shot about the mobility industry that you believe will happen in the next five to 10 years? Yeah. I think one that's going out there is really around electric vehicle penetration. I think everyone knows that, or maybe not everyone, but it's if you look at the numbers, you can see that the penetration is going up and you can see from announcements that companies are making publicly that the penetration is going up. But I think that the forecasts are will actually get exceeded over the next particularly 10 years for what the percentage of new vehicle sales that will go to all electric vehicles will be. So, I mean, even seeing things like 40% or more, I think could be very plausible. Great. Thank you so much, Scott, for your insights. It was great talking to you, learning more about the future of mobility. It was a pleasure having you on. Absolutely. No, pleasure being here. Appreciate you extending me the invite. And yeah, <laughs> thanks again. Thanks again.